You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. My name is Mark Murphy. I'm from Dingle Cookery School and I'm presenting the show for your usual host, Sharon Noonan. Coming up on tonight's programme, we get to speak to Sharon herself. We get to turn the microphone around and ask Sharon a few questions. We get to speak to uh, Peter Fines from the Butter Museum in Cork. Following that, we're going to talk to Morris Gilbert from Ballyhara Apple Farm. And finally on the show, then we're going to have Elaine Horrigan from 1826 Restaurant in Adair. If you would like to get in touch with Best Possible Taste, please drop an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet Sharon, as usual, at Queen of Org, Queen of Organisation. So that brings us to our first guest. So we get to speak to Sharon herself and we get to ask Sharon a few questions. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy this. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sharon, you're very welcome to your own show. Thanks a million, Mark. It's a bit strange now <laughs> to be in the different side of the computer, but no harm. It gives me a taste of what the guests are presented with each week. Sharon, really what we want to just have a quick chat about, we're just going to talk about yourself a little bit, but we're also going to talk about the show as well, because people are so used to you asking questions, but it's maybe great to hear a little bit of insight about the show. So starting off, can you just tell us about the best possible taste and how did it come about? Well, I suppose the reason you're here tonight, Mark, is to celebrate three years on air. So thanks a million for taking the hot seat for me. The story goes back over three years, I suppose, three and a half years, maybe a bit further back than that. When I was at school, I did work experience in a radio station in the north. And when I was there, they told me, yep, you're good at everything, but nobody wants to listen to that accent, which was a bit of a stab in the heart, really, because I just loved radio and everything to do with radio. And I loved talking to people. I suppose I was a bit of a nosy neb, really. I like to call it being curious, but my parents tell me I was just very nosy. So I shelved the whole idea of doing something in radio for a career and I went off to Queen's and did the sensible degree in French and business, got the sensible jobs, had a great career in sales and marketing all over the world and then sure I met himself and I always say he wouldn't leave his mommy because she is a fabulous mommy. So I left mine and moved down to Newcastle West. I'm down here about ten and a half years. And whenever I was here a few years, we had our first child, Hannah is now five, and I was kind of off then. I took redundancy from the job that I was working at, but I wouldn't be one to sit still now. I was always looking for a project. And a friend had asked me if I'd help her organise a food festival in Newcastle West as part of the Knights of West Fest Festival. So I said, yep, that's fine. And as we were organising it I'd said to her look this is your baby because I'm actually having another baby so I had number two and last baby Mikey who is now four I had him in July and the food festival was in September and it was a great success and we had great crack organising it met a great bunch of people and one of those people was the lovely Monsieur Clement Patrick Clement from Palace Foods and in April the following year the Great Taste Awards were in Dublin the judging was in Dublin for the Ireland products and Patrick asked myself and Noreen who'd been the other girl involved in the taste of Westfest if we'd like to go up and be on the judging panel so we said yeah absolutely 
And at the same time, I was doing training here in West Limerick 102. There had been an ad in the paper offering training to people that wanted to come in and be part of the radio station. So I was doing that. And whenever I had to come in the first night and they'd gone around the group and said, well, what sort of show will you do now when you're finished the training? I had said, oh, I won't, I won't present a show. I'll do something technical because I said nobody wants to listen to my accent. So it's amazing the way something that you're told as a teenager can still be very much in your head 20 years later. But that to me was very much like, you know, I'll do something technical. I'll produce a show. I'll do something behind the scenes. I won't do something that people have to listen to this accent. And my very nice group of other students said, absolutely not, Sharon. We love your accent. You have to present a show. Now if you saw my collection of CDs you wouldn't want me presenting a music show. So I was saying to myself what you know what sort of a show could I possibly do that wouldn't be as taxing as something like current affairs which I wouldn't really be into or politics. The music was out and at the Great Taste Awards I came across this guy called Nigel Barden and Nigel does a slot on Radio 4 with Simon Mayo and it's a food slot. So that day, coming home from the Great Taste Awards, I said to Noreen in the car, I'm going to do a food show. Brilliant, and we're all lucky for that. And I'm sure the people of West Limerick and beyond have fallen in love with your accent. Um, How do you feel the show has evolved since you've started? Well, I'm so lucky that the radio station were very open to the idea and let me have carte blanche on it. And I had a a fantastic girl, Geraldine O'Sullivan, used to produce the show. So to get it up and running, I just couldn't have done it without Geraldine, without her support. She did all the technical stuff. So during the week, I got to phone people, email people, research. I use social media an awful lot to get people to interview and I'd like to think three years on it's a lot slicker that, you know, I'm a, I'm more engaging with, with guests. I hope I am anyway and that I try to make it, even though it is a community radio station in West Limerick, the show goes up in the podcast you can hear it online anywhere in the world so I do try to make it an All-Ireland if not even beyond a few international guests yeah, now and again Food is a massive part of our lives now Irish food has really come to the fore and like the one thing I get from your show is you have a huge range of um, people that come from all different walks of life involved in the food industry. You've met some very interesting people over the years. I've been so lucky, some of the people that I've met, really interesting people. And, I, you know, I, I do try to keep it very varied. Like I had Henrietta Graham, who's an artist in southwest England, who paints chefs. You know, that's, you know, it's not the first type of guest you'd think of whenever you think of the show but I just like to do different things I like to shake it up now and again that it's not just a chef with a recipe or somebody talking about their new product those are great stories and they're vital to the show and the success of the show and the listenership love that but I like to throw in a few curveballs now and again and like tonight having somebody guest present is one of those curveballs and something that I'm planning to continue with like we're going we're both going yourself included Mark we're going to Food in the Age in a few weeks time and I'll have Manuela Spinelli who would have been the translator for Trapatoni she is going to guest present a show that will have a 
Food and the Age theme. So hopefully we're going to have some really amazing international guests on that particular programme. Yeah, and it really is a credit to you um, that you, you're able to keep the, your finger on the pulse and allow your listeners to, to have their finger on the pulse as well pretty much yeah and it's great whenever they do get in touch like I have one particular listener I have to say a big hello to Peg Nash every Tuesday night she contacts me with some comment about the show always something very positive very friendly feedback and I really appreciate that she does that that you know she might say oh yeah I've been down in Ballyvalan House this lady is extremely well travelled I keep saying to her she'll have to come on to the show herself at some stage because she's been to Ashford she's been to Arzec she's been to all the top places all over the world and I'm sure she should make an ideal guest and it would be yeah even from it would be lovely to speak to the lady and even find out where she feels our food is and where our local food is and stuff like that you were saying earlier on though even though you have your finger on the pulse a lot of times stuff you find it very difficult for uh, to, ke- to constantly look for stuff for your show that more so that you want people to engage and give you a shout that if they want to promote something or tell about a festival or or maybe something that's coming up related to food yeah the, i think the food media is so important to food producers restaurateurs people that are trying to get a business off the ground and although this is a community radio station and the programme goes up onto the podcast. It's a great way to practice sitting in front of that microphone, being interviewed by somebody, so that whenever you get that call from Ryan Tupperty or Ray Darcy, at least you've had that bit of experience. You can listen back to it yourself. You can cringe away, but you can also learn from it and improve from the experience as well. Yeah, you probably shouldn't listen to yourself. I know <laughs> when I hear myself, it sounds uh, like I always think it definitely don't sound that bad, do I? Um, do you ever, because your accent is very distinct, do you ever find that people, you come up to someone in the when you're out and about and go oh you're that lady from the radio that is so bizarre that you ask me that I'd say my I've been recognised once because (laughs) of my voice and it was a very kind of I turned into a, a bit of a girly girl moment I was in the library and I was asking the librarian about a particular book and a fellow librarian came over and said, I recognise that accent. Do you present the food drink show on West Limerick 102? And I was like, oh, my God. That's brilliant. I'm sure there's loads out there who have never said it to you. (laughs) And then if I was to ask you yourself, what do you think you would be doing if you weren't in West Limerick or if you weren't sitting in front of a, a microphone? Well, I probably would still be in the sales and marketing arena. Whenever I was in Belfast, whenever I met Michael, my husband, I was working in Queen's University there and I was in, in business outreach to trying to get businesses to come into the university to use the resources there. And I find like those skills that I was using there, like dealing with people, research, they're very much skills that I'm using on a day-to-day basis for the radio show. And, you know, I, I feel that I have a great opportunity to sell what's great about Ireland in the food and drink industry, be it that new product that has just won a Blossom Erin Award or be it that new restaurant that has opened up in Limerick. And I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to do that. And also then, because I'm from Northern Ireland, I do take advantage of that and have been trying this year to promote the whole Northern Ireland year of food and drink with having a, a month slot there and it also gives me a, a good excuse to get up home regularly. Yeah but it really is it's an exciting time to be involved in 
in food in any way or format or even just to be interested in food at the moment. Yeah, it? it's a great industry and everybody's always very positive in it. There's a great energy to it and food tourism in Ireland as well is giving Ireland such a boost from an economic perspective. So, I mean, to be part of that is, is such an honour. Well, it's great uh, for your listeners to finally get a chance to listen to you being um, interviewed, Sharon. Uh, But congratulations on your um, third year as well. Well done. And we wish you the best of luck. Um, So thank you very much, Sharon. And thank you, Mark, for presenting tonight. Looking forward to the rest of the programme. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. So it was great to talk to Sharon. Um, It's just great to turn it around and give you a little insight about herself. Still to come tonight, I will be talking to Morris Gilbert from Ballyhara Apples. We'll be talking to Elaine Horrigan from 1826 Restaurant in Adair. But before that, we're going to take a trip down to Cork City. Um, when I was doing some research for the show, one thing I found is uh, I was looking at different angles and I was really fascinated by the Butter Museum in Cork City. So we're delighted to have on the line uh, Peter Fines from Cork uh, Butter Museum. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Peter, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Peter, butter is uh, probably something that we take for granted, but it has a huge significance in food history. I'm hoping that you're going to tell us a little bit about the actual, about the Butter Museum in Cork City itself. Yeah, well, the Butter Museum was established, well, actually, exactly 20 years ago and next year, um, Beside the site of what was the old butter market in Cork, which really went from about 1769 to 1924, which was actually the largest butter market in the world, which tells you how important butter was in Ireland and in the Irish economy, that a, a provincial Irish town, which Cork was basically, would have the largest market in the world. Wow. That's Why do you think that is? Why? Basically climate. I mean, it's, you know, Ireland has this exceptionally mild uh, weather, which makes it perfect grass-growing country which means it's cattle country, which basically means it's going to be, um, well, beef, but beef is less important uh, before refrigeration, that kind of thing. So it really becomes very much a dairy world, basically grass-based food, and especially dairy. Okay. So if we go back to the 1700s during the uh, butter exchange, where was it exported to? And it was, well, it, oh, the, the exchange, I would say, was 1769 to 80, so roughly 140 years. So in different places, uh, in its early days, a lot of it went actually to the West Indies and to North America, but especially the West Indies across the Atlantic. Also went uh, down to Portugal and then from Portugal across to Brazil. And then later on in the 19th century, as the American market fell off and the West Indies market fell off, the UK became much more important. So slowly you get that shift from, let's say, the long distance trade to, 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 the U, to, to England especially, uh, because obviously... Okay. And when we look at the long distance trade, like yeah. how long are we talking about, or how did our butter last that length? Good question. Well, the butter they're talking about back in that stage is not really like what we regard as being butter in the sense it would have been made from like modern butter, modern Irish butter, and it was made from sweet cream, cream that hasn't hasn't gone sour. Whereas traditionally, butter would have been made from cream that has gone sour. There's a 17th, 18th century account Arthur Young actually talking about letting the cream rise and then letting go, so, pu- just putting it off the, the milk um, like leather. So it'll be sour cream first and then much more salt will be added. And again, modern butter would have about 2% salt in it. That's really for flavor. But 
back in the 18th century and the 19th century, um, much more salt is added as a preservative. So you would be talking maybe an ounce to the pound, wow. which is like 14% salt. So uh, I, so it's, it would be a much different um, product to what we are, much stronger too. Nonetheless, people liked it. I don't know about that. And how was it transported? Was it in special barrels? or? Yeah, the, the long distance trade would have been, it was the, the farmers would have made it by hand, obviously. This is before the days of the creamery. Uh, and then brought into the city. And then for the long distance trade, it seems it was rebarreled into barrels, oak barrels. And then um, sent across a long distance uh, to, as I say, North America and the West Indies. Um, there's still something of a mystery as to how it managed to get that far and still be edible, but it certainly clearly it did, though. Yeah, because yeah. it obviously built up a reputation as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's accounts of New York traders saying that, you, that they kept their Irish butter for their best friends because it was the best. Wow, that's incredible. And then the butter from around that period, was it from all of Munster? Or it, was was, it seems to be, uh, funny enough, not so much Limerick, but more Kerry, Cork, um, West Cork, mainly. It seemed seems to be from that period. Limerick emerges, or seems to emerge, although Limerick had its own butter market, I think in Brewery as well. But, um, it's really in the creamery period, later on in the 20th century, that Limerick begins to predominate. But the evidence suggests that the, the 19th century butter was coming from Kerry and Cork. Wow, that's, a, that's quite fascinating. But we have a huge history of butter. Like, it goes right back to oh, early yeah. times, early Christian times. Well, well, the, the oldest dated butter in the world is Irish, and that's about three and a half thousand years old. So. Okay. So we are, yes, definitely preeminent in the dairy, the butter world, shall we say. Yeah, could you explain a little bit more about the, uh, the role of the monks and early Christian times? Well, it's not so much the monks, but I mean, if you go back to that world, um, you know, you're talking about a world where the, where the food range is much narrower. If you think of most of what we eat today, like things like tomatoes, potatoes, all the fruits we take for granted, they didn't exist. So you are talking about a much narrower world, um, okay. a much narrower food world. And in that world, obviously, dairy produce becomes much more important because obviously it's a much more narrow food range. And within that dairy range, uh, butter becomes important because... Butter, I mean, milk is great, but milk doesn't keep. Um, but if you make butter and you even do it half well, it will keep. And that's terribly important for, for the winter, for, yeah. for getting fodder, not fodder, but food over the winter. Um, and that's what makes butter so important in that culture. It's also, of course, a very high state of food. I mean, it takes a lot of milk um, to make butter. Yeah. And if you go back to that period, um, obviously the yields of the cow is much smaller than we'd expect these days. So clearly it's much more high status food. And are we looking at different cows back then, a different breed? We would be, yeah. Um, the early breeds seem to be in variations or relations to the Kerry and Dexters. That's certainly the Kerrys anyway. Um, from the early breeds, it's really much more recently that you get, as you know, probably get the, the Frisians coming in the 50s. Um, so it is a different um, cow. Okay. And you spoke a few minutes ago, Peter, about um, butter being 3,500 years old. But uh-huh. you, I think you have in a museum, you have some bog butter. Is that? Yeah, that's the bog. We, we, the bog the, the, we have bog butter, which is a thousand years old. It's actually the National Museum's bog butter, but we, we, we have it on loan, which is, yes, that's about a thousand years old. So in terms of bog butter, yeah. it's quite impressive, but... It's not the oldest, not by a long chalk, no. And I believe a lot of bog butters was, when it's discovered, sometimes it was discovered with maybe um, a chieftain of the clan or something like that, for food to bring on to their afterlife. Is that 
it, it's not clear. There's lots of theories of why bog butter was buried. I mean, it can be a simple thing like storage and they forgot about it, or it could be something like that, um, you know, the bog shifted and it was lost. Okay. But the current, there is some current thinking that it is something, that, not so much afterlife, but to do with, um, like an early Irish tradition, when a man became a chieftain or a king, his coronation was understood as a kind of a wedding to the land. So then you, as part of the wedding gift, you bury butter. You, you bury high-value goods in the land. And some people think that that's what bog butter is there for, that it is part of a coronation ritual. Okay. and That's just a food thing. Probably when everyone, anyone talks about bog butter, the one thing that they always come up is like, have you ever tasted it? Or have I you ever been tempted to taste no. it? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. There's a group made, some Vikings, not Vikings, some Danish people made, it's on the web someplace, they're called the, the Butter Vikings, made some bog butter in Ballymaloof two years ago. Okay. I didn't taste it. Um, yeah, it should be interesting. Like, you know, it'd be interesting to see what way it has been preserved and stuff. But if we were to look at the Butter Museum and just tell us a little bit about what would I expect when I go there? Like, what's... Well, yeah, the museum, well, as I said, it's, it's in a location just beside beside the old Butter Market in Shandon. And really, it's a small museum, you know, but it's, it's really more an introduction because this is obviously a vast area, the whole history of Butter and Daring in Ireland. But essentially, it is... It, it's a, there's a video which really tells the story of the transformation of the butter in dairy industry in general in Ireland from, let's say, the 1960s to the 1980s, from basically the old days of the small creameries to, to like, the global industry that it is now. And then we have quite a good selection of objects from, um, you know, the traditional butter making, the folklore, the, the skimmers, the churns, that sort of... Brilliant. And then there's another room that deals with, again, the emergence of cork in the food trade in general, actually. Okay. The butter trade. Wow, sounds so interesting. It really, really does. Who well, is uh, people from Limerick anyway? What? Yeah, and who is your uh, most of your clientele? Like, is it overseas? It is, is mainly overseas. Yeah, about eighty percent of our visitors are overseas. Um, about fifteen percent American, about the same UK, same UK, German, French, and Italian, mainly, mainly. Wow, it's probably because we just take it for granted. We don't see the significance of butter itself that's no. been in our history, but it's huge. It's massive. Is yeah, it is very important. And in I mean, your, it is very important. And in your own opinion, when would you feel that was was the best era for butter, or is it now? Best era for butter. Yeah, sort of the best I think era. Oh, actually, I mean, I suppose I would say that, but I think it's now. I mean, people. Are be- well, I'm not so much butter with dairy in general. People begin to understand much more the science of butter making and what is inside in butter, what is, is inside in butter that is actually good for people, you know. It went through a bad phase in the 70s with these anxiety about saturated fats, and that, but that seems to be overcome, not that I was a scientist, but nonetheless, uh, I think the science is catching up for people generally understood, you know, that butter is actually good for you. Yeah, it's moderation good. like anything else. And the flavour is unbelievable. Exactly. And, yeah, I, like, you know, I'm sure we can be biased when we say, but we do have some of the best butter in the world. It's no doubt about it. I mean, Americans, well, Americans particularly come in, they always say that they, they just, visitors to the country, they can't, they're quite taken aback by how, how good the butter is in Ireland. But that's because it's grass-fed. That's, that's what makes the difference. Brilliant. Yeah, it definitely right. is. And it's the colour of it as well. Yeah, well, that's so, the parotene. Peter, if we were to just tell our listeners, um, if you just sort of give us details of the museum itself, like what is the opening times and well, where would we find more information? We, yeah, we're, we're winding down now. From, from November to February inclusive, we're only open the week, well, weekends, um, Saturdays and Sundays. But normally during the season, we're open like seven days a week from March to October inclusive. You know, 
We also do buttermaking demonstrations regularly, actually. But that, that check the website. We have a website. And your website is? Well, www.corkbutter.museum. We have a .museum website. Brilliant. Okay. You can find it. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. It's fascinating and I can't wait to visit. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. My name is Mark Murphy. I'm from Dingle Cookery School and I'm filling in tonight for your usual host, Sharon Noonan. So far on the show, we have had Sharon herself. Uh, we've also spoken to uh, Butter Museum in Cork. And still to come, we have Elaine Horrigan from 1826. But that takes us along to our, uh, our next guest. And our next guest is Morris Gilbert from Ballyharapal. I've known Morris myself for probably the last eight years ago, where I met him first was at Dingle Food Festival and selling apple juice and from one thing that really stood out that time was his positive attitude and just how much he loved his his product so we're joined uh, now in studio with Morris Gilbert from Ballyhara Apple Farm Cheers Chin Chin Salut Schleinte Morris you're very welcome to the show Thank you Mark uh, Morris, first of all, tell us exactly where Ballyhara is. Probably most of our listeners will know, but just remind us exactly where it is. Well, I suppose Ballyhara stretches from North Cork to South East Limerick, and we kind of touch into Tipperary as well. So we're over, over that side of the country. Okay, so you're not far from, uh, not far from everyone, I think. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about Ballyhara Apple Farm? Well, Ballyhara Apple Farm, I suppose, started out of necessity... Um, eight or nine years ago when the construction industry collapsed um, myself and my friend Jerry Murphy had planted an orchard in Churchtown with a view to having a visitor centre there at some stage um, but the whole thing took on quite differently when um, the building industry as I said collapsed I was involved in construction for years and I had to look around me at the assets and see what I was going to take on next so we had the orchard we had planted previously 5,000 trees in Churchtown and um, I decided to have a go at trying to do something with the produce that we had there. Okay, and is it something, was there always apples within your family or is it something that you grew up with yourself? No, we'll say my, my father had always grown tomatoes and had grown various stuff for the house and we would have been, um, I suppose, a slightly agricultural background but um, no, construction was my main thing, and that's what I'd been involved in for years. But I returned from, from 10 years in London in 1994, and in 1998 I met Jerry, and we, we started developing a, a lot of um, rural development, I suppose, in Churchtown in North Cork. So we did quite a bit of housing there, we did a couple of nursing homes, and renovated the old buildings in the village. But taking on then with the, the apples, I suppose, was something I've always loved cooking, I've always had a love for messing with recipes. And I started, um, I suppose, at Mahan Point in 2009 with a few baskets of apples and a few bottles of juice. And it just grew from there. And basically it grew, it, a lot of it grew out of necessity. I suppose the first winter, the, the juice was falling away, the sale of the juice was falling away. So I came up with a recipe for mulled apple juice. So we were making that in a saucepan selling it from the stall and we um, 
everybody liked it and they, they, they pushed us to, to bottling it. So the following summer we bottled it, we took it to Blossom here in Dingle and we got silver as best new product. Brilliant. That's fantastic. It really is. Um, and I believe as well that you've moved some of your orchard. You've taken up and moved it somewhere else. Is that correct? <laughs> we did. Um, well, I'm, I'm living in Kilfinnan, so Kilfinnan is the, the, the basis for our, for our whole um, operation at the moment. And we had a bit of land in Kilfinnan and we had our trees planted in Churchtown. And um, due to a number of different circumstances, we had a customer for the land in Churchtown and um, we decided that we would move the orchard, the whole 5,000 trees, to Kilfinnan. So it was a bit of a, a, bit of a crazy move, I suppose. But um, I had it worked out and I reckoned if we had a 40% success rate that we'd be doing, we'd be doing well rather than planting a new orchard. Um, and the way things worked out after a lot of hard work, we actually ended up with a 95% success rate. After wow, that. that's incredible. And what type of apples do you have? Or do you have a huge selection of apples? The, the varieties we would have, I suppose, are mainly Dutch varieties. We would have things like Seaval, Delinco, Kalina, and uh, varieties, they're Dutch varieties. They would be juicy apples, because mainly, I suppose, juice is our, our main thing. Yeah. But we've always had this, this um, or I've always had this leaning towards healthy products, so, you know, following on the, the mulled apple juice, we did an apple beetroot, which is a very good detox, but should always be blended with a juice that's high in vitamin C. So therefore, we came up with our apple beetroot. We followed that on then with an apple parsnip. Um, we do one at the moment with apple, green tea, black pepper and spices that we call hot frisky. We got in the top 100 products in, the, in London with that at the IFE, an international um, food exhibition. And there was 5,000 products from 55 wow. countries. That's so. incredible. And I, and I would imagine that you have to keep coming up with sort of eventually every now and then you have to come up with new products. It's so sort of the customer to give them another option as well, but also to keep your name out there. Well, I suppose so, but I don't know where these ideas come from, but they, there's, somebody <laughs> up there, there's somebody up there throwing them down at me anyway. But um, no, we, we've had very, very good success with our product range. We have a huge product range for a small company with a very big product range. And... Um, you know, all of the products that we've tried and put into the market, they've all done reasonably well for us. Um, we took 10 products to the Great Taste Awards. We got seven goals. We've picked up something at Bloss um, almost every year since we started going down in 2009. And... Um, you know, things are, things are going in the right direction. And us. that's brilliant because it is a lot of hard work. A small business is a lot of hard work because you're involved in production, you're involved in the sales. You also have to go to a lot of your weekly markets, but you have to attend festivals as well and different types of shows. Um, tell us what an average working day or even, or is there such thing as an average working day? Well, I suppose now there, there isn't really. No, there isn't because every week is different and, you know, you you have to do things as they come up and you have to prioritize and that's basically what i do is i sit down and start the week and i prioritize what i have to do for the week and i try to get to those things you're not going to get to everything but i'm i'm lucky i'm in a good position at the moment um for a good number of years i was working alone but now i've i've in the last year and a half i suppose we've decided to commercialize the whole operation um we did the food academy with um super value and this year we've just completed the, the Advanced Food Academy. That has made a huge difference to us because we're now in over 100 super values. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Um, 
when we took the, the decision to commercialise, I hired um, Dunraftery with me, and Dunra does a lot of the sales and a lot of the deliveries, and he's he's kind of the face or the interface with the super values at the moment. While I, I stay at the research, development, and the production myself. And you also, we also see you sometimes at different festivals, and we do see you at expos and stuff like that. And the one thing that probably stands out is, you're just how much of a good salesman you are yourself. You're very, you just love dealing with the public. So it's very important of that part as well, wouldn't you agree? Well, it is. You know, you have to. The first thing you have to do, I think, is you have to get your product out there. If people, especially with our stuff, like, you know, mulled apple juice, apple beetroot, apple with green tea, you know, people look at these and they say, you know, what, what is it? So the first thing you have to do, you have to get them to taste it. And after they taste it, obviously, you have to try and get them to buy it. So you have to have a knowledge of the product yourself. And you have to, you have to be able to interact with people. And I found this of, of huge benefit to particularly my two younger children have done a share of the markets with me over the last few years yeah and it becomes a genuine love of the product it's very obvious to see when someone approaches your stall oh yeah well like you have to because you know if you don't like the product if it's if it's just selling something you know it's not the same as as, um, if you're selling your own product it's part of yourself it's something we've developed over the last eight or nine years you know and it's something that's very dear to us and you spoke a few minutes ago about uh, winning Bloss and Heron and the Great Food uh, Taste Awards. How important are these to you? Or maybe is it, do they give you recognition or what is it? Well, they're, they're hugely important, I suppose. The, the first award we got at Bloss, um, you know, I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing with this stuff. And it was all very much a learning process and playing it by ear. And like to, we got two silvers in 2010. We got one for a salad dressing and we got one as best new product for our mulled apple juice. And it was hugely important to us because it gave us the confidence to go forward. And I think confidence is, is a huge thing. And the, the likes of Cork County Council, they took us to several events abroad. And um, it's the confidence you gain from awards and the confidence you gain from going to these um, international exhibitions and having your product recognised internationally, it's, it's a huge benefit. Yeah, and it's a credit then to your staff and all your hard work as well. It really brings that all back home. Um, you do go to a lot of weekly markets. Like, uh, people would expect to see you. Where would we see you? We see a Mahan Point. Well, Mahan Point, I suppose, is the main one that we have continued with all the time. We have been in and out of various other ones in, in both Limerick and Cork. Um, we're running our own market down Kilfinnan on the first Fridays. Um, we started it as a twilight market that we would do it in the evenings, but for the winter now we're going to do it as a daily market as well. So on, on every first Friday we'll be at our own premises, which is the former Shannon Development site in Kilfinnan. In Kilfinnan, and that's yeah. a market, when did you say that was again? That is on the first Friday of every month. First Friday, and from yeah. what times? What? Well, from 10 o'clock in the morning until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And we, we should expect to find a few more food producers there, is that? You'd have, we have a few more food producers, and we also have a, a good number of craft producers. There's a hub, you know, what we're trying to do in Kilfinnan is we're trying to have it as a hub for um, craft and food activity. And uh, like Kilfinnan, I suppose, has come on leaps and bounds in the last couple Brilliant. of years. And I think there's a lot of credit due to a few people like ourselves and a few food producers around the place. But there's also a lot of credit due to um, a couple of people who have started up the, the local Kyoltis group there. And like 
they're only going 12 months, they have over 100 students, but it's bringing people, it's bringing people into the village to yeah. learn the music and it's pulling people um, in to listen to the music. That's brilliant. It really is a community project. So, Morris, just to finish up, can you just remind our listeners or tell us exactly where we'd find more details about your stuff? Just give us your website, please. Well, I suppose, um, ballyhowerapplefarm.com, we'll get, get a, a good bit of information. Um, we're in Kilfinnan, and we're doing various tastings then around the country in um, Super Values as well. Brilliant. Well, it's fabulous to talk to you, Morris. Thanks very much, and we wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. My name is Mark Murphy. I'm from Dingle Cookery School, and I'm here tonight uh, presenting for your usual host, Sharon Noonan. So far on the show, we, got, we had a great chat with Sharon herself. We got to speak with Peter Fines from the Cork Butter Museum. And then we've, do, and we've just spoken to Morris Gilbert from Ballyhara Apple Farm. Um, that brings us along to our next guest and our final guest of the night. Our next guest is Elaine Horrigan from 1826 Restaurant in Adair. Most of us probably already know her husband, Wade. He's the chef and you're probably very familiar with him through the station here, but also through TV and stuff. But tonight we get to talk to the woman behind the operation as well. And as I'm reminded, behind every man, there's an incredible woman. So our next guest is Elaine Horrigan from 1826. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Elaine, you're very welcome to the show. Great, thanks, Mark. Delighted to be with you. That's good. So I just said you're from 1826 Restaurant, which is in Adair. Could you tell us a little bit about it and what should we expect when we go there? Sure. Uh, we opened three years ago and we're located on the main street in Adair in one of the thatched cottages. I suppose what we'd like to think anyway when people come here that they would experience um, really great food in a friendly, attentive atmosphere uh, with friendly service and great food basically and that they would leave wanting to come back <laughs> brilliant um and like there's yourself and wade your husband wade involved in the project now we know that wade is the chef he's behind it but you're front of house so can you just explain to us a little bit about what your role is what front of house really means Sure, as Wade says, he cooks and I do everything else, (laughs) which is true. But um, I suppose Front of House looks after everything from the the beginning of my uh, journey with the customer, from the time they book to the time they arrive and have their meals. So preparing the restaurant for service, uh, confirming bookings, um, then during service looking after the customer, customer and making sure that they have everything they need. And, you know, saying goodbye to them and hopefully seeing them again, you know, that's kind of... Yeah, because <laughs> sometimes we, we go to a restaurant and sometimes we just look at the food and sometimes we just maybe think about the chef or we think of what's happening in the kitchen. We forget about the hard work that really happens um, out on the floor. And that starts from the very first time I make a phone call or make contact with the restaurant itself. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose, um, you know, it starts whether it's uh, by email or by phone, um, you know, and ensuring that 
obviously you respond to people in a timely manner and um, give them as much information that they require. And then, of course, there's also the factor of making sure that the restaurant is presentable as well when they arrive, you know, whether it's cleaning or the maintenance or whatever it might be, just that, you know, when we open the doors that we're ready to welcome people. Yeah, and I suppose it's well, it's about managing your own team and getting that message across to all your staff so that they buy into what you're doing, that it's not just yourself and Wade that's looking after the restaurant, that each and every one of the staff, that they buy into it and they really treat the customer with so much respect and they really look after the customer as well. Absolutely, and I think, you know, we wouldn't ask anyone to do anything that we wouldn't do ourselves. And, um, you know, we're there, we're working side by side with people. We're very much a team. Um, You know, we can't operate without them. Um, we, you know, it's very much we work together um, to get the end goal, I suppose, you know, and um, we are lucky that we do have a lot of great team members that have bought into what we do. And, you know, we have a number of people that have been with us since we've opened up and like it's, it's really great. And when anything that we achieve, you know, it's equally as much what we achieve that they achieve, you know, that it's a really a team effort. And that's great to hear because we hear so many things about the restaurant industry. But when you hear of um, restaurants that talk about that, where they look after their staff and where their staff are with them, like you've said, you've been open since 2013, you still have some of your staff sit down. That obviously speaks a lot about yourself and how you run the restaurant itself and what you sort of expect from your, your staff as well. So it's, it's really lovely to hear as well that you'd never expect them to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. Definitely not, no. And uh, if someone was thinking of getting into the uh, front of house, what advice would you have for them yourself? Well, I would say it is a great industry. It is hard work, but it's rewarding also. You know, when you see people enjoy the fruits of your labours, you know, there's nothing better than that feeling. Or if you, at the end of the evening, and you've had a brilliant service and everything's just gone the way you want it, you know, you can't beat that buzz or that feeling. And also, I would say, from my own point of view, I, I suppose the big attraction for me for this industry is the ease of travel in the world with it. It's very easy to work abroad. Yeah, because you yourself, you've worked abroad before yeah. you've come back to County Limerick, isn't yeah, that correct? Yeah, I would have worked in, in Germany for a number of years, in Australia and in the States as well. And I think that's really a, a very positive thing about the industry, you know, because it's so... It's worldwide, you know, and you can go anywhere with it. Yeah, and I suppose, like, from that as well, like, you know, since you've worked long, you've probably brought back a lot that you've applied to your own restaurant and the way you even look at things maybe differently and so on. Yeah, definitely. You know, those experiences I've had, you know, definitely have stayed with me. I would say from when I worked in, in Germany, you know, attention to detail was so important and that's something that you know, is instilled in me, you know, it's what I do and it's what I expect everyone else to do as well. And, you know, that really helps. And I suppose then in America, customer service is so, you know, prevalent, you know, everywhere you go, whether it's have a nice day or whatever it is, but it is so important. And, that you know, you take a bit from everywhere you've been 
definitely. Yeah, and how did you become involved initially? Like, was from a young age, were you very interested in customer service and really working in the hospitality industry? Um, when I was doing my, my leave insert, I worked part-time in the Woodlands Hotel in Adair. And um, I suppose that's probably where it started. Um, you know, I worked part-time there and then I went on to study hotel management and it progressed from there. It wasn't something that I always wanted to do, but it kind of evolved. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's, we're, we're probably, everyone else is probably glad that you have made that decision. How do you feel that um, it has changed since maybe since, since you've started, even before 1826, but how do you feel that the restaurant industry has changed well, I think it's changed for the better, definitely. I think um, our tastes and food have developed, you know, overall. We have a lot more influences from around the world, different types of cuisine. You know, we're more knowledgeable, definitely. The, the average person is more knowledgeable about food and, you know, the ingredients that are available in supermarkets these days than, you know, even 20 years ago is, you know, so much different and... Yeah, so people's knowledge has, the customer's knowledge has changed. Um, I suppose uh, from the personnel side or from the work side, in the past, I suppose it would have been very kind of maybe stuffy service in some restaurants in that it would have been very serious. And, you know, you would have called your boss Mr. or Mrs., you know. Yeah. Now everyone would very much be on first name terms and... You know, it wouldn't be as stuffy, which I think is good because sometimes that can intimidate people. Or, you know. Yeah, and I would imagine that as uh, we have, you know, we've travelled more now and as you said, like we eat out more, a little bit more and stuff. So it probably gives them higher expectations, but it also probably gives you a chance where you can set the bar higher because you know that they appreciate high ex, um, ex standards and so on. Exactly, and even, you know, in the restaurant here, we would source a lot for food locally and everything, and people appreciate that. Whereas, you know, maybe in the past, we might have been price-driven rather than quality-driven, whereas I think people appreciate quality now as well. Brilliant. And um, I said at the opening of the piece that your restaurant, it's uh, it's in Adair and it has won many awards. It, it continues to win awards every year. And I, and I would imagine that you work very, very hard to win these. What do those awards mean for your restaurant? Well, as we say, we don't go out looking for them, but we are delighted to get them. <laughs> they definitely help and they help, you know, create um, exposure for the restaurant, um, whether it's national or locally and they help with the business. They help also for attracting people to work in the restaurant, I think, also is important, not only from the customer point of view. You know, people want to obviously work in a successful restaurant. Um, But it is hard work, and it's hard work from everyone, but, you know, it's great to get that acknowledgement from, you know, the industry. If you are doing something, you know, that you're putting your, your life into, basically. Yeah. And it is a husband and wife team and that must be very hard at times because you're working together all the time. You're pretty much, you know, and and it's also your livelihood that it's worked out together and stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of arguments or just uh, that happen within work or within, an, what would you think say to yeah, that? Yeah, there is. It's, a, it's, um, it's an unusual dynamic because, I don't know, if you've ever worked for your family, you will 
say things to your family that we, you would never say to an employee or vice versa. So yes, it's interesting. It does take a bit of time to get used to it and for each of us to find our own areas and, you know, and try not to stamp on toes. Like, yeah, it definitely takes a bit of effort. But what we do try to do is that we try not to discuss the restaurant at home. Yeah, so that's that's probably very important. And then if it was just to say on your days off, who does the cooking on your days off? Do you get to do the cooking or does Wade take over? No, as I say, why would I bother cooking when I have a chef in the house? So what I normally, we normally only cook at home once a week and Wade normally cooks. The deal in the house is whoever cooks, the other person has to do the wash up. Oh, really? Well, I would be cooking then. That's where uh, I would be volunteering to cook. Um, he gets off lightly then, I would imagine, oh, because yeah. I would imagine he, um, I would imagine that he uh, dirties every pot Absolutely. and pan. He still thinks he's in the restaurant. Yeah, he thinks he has someone washing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe you had a recent visit from Nevin Maguire. Um, is that correct? Yes, yeah, Wade is um, uh, doing a dish on his new show that's coming out in January. So um, he was here filming. Um, it's a local lamb dish that Wade did. Brilliant. So, yeah, it was nice, and it was nice to be asked, um, to be included in that, you know, because Nevin is, is such a, a legend, <laughs> I would say, you know, and he's a genuinely nice guy as well. He is, and I think he shares the same principles as yourselves. He he works very hard within his restaurant, but he also supports a lot of his local producers. And really, it's about good food and good service. Yeah, I agree. And even, you know, not only he also works with his wife as well, so we would have a lot of similarities like that. And, you know, he understands the importance of, um, you know, if you do have some free time to make the most of it as well and, to enjoy it, he even said to us, oh, you know, what are you doing these even and now enjoy Great. enjoy it, you know. Yeah, so finally then, um, just to finish up then, Elaine, just to tell our listeners, um, how do they find you? Tell us a little bit about your opening hours and just, mm. please. So we're um, 1826 Adair and we're located in Adair Village and we open Wednesday through Friday from 5.30 and Saturday from 6pm and Sunday 3pm. Brilliant. And they can get you on the, uh, your website, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which is 1826 Great. Thanks very much, Elaine, and keep up the hard work. It's been fabulous to, to talk to you. Great. Thanks very much, Mark. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunte. It was really fascinating to have a good chat with Elaine and really see what good service, what makes a good service team and the attention to detail and what's involved in a restaurant and how important it is to have a good person out front. Sadly, that brings us to the end of tonight's show, uh, which will be on the podcast later on in the week. Uh, You'll find that on SharonNoonan.com or you can subscribe to it free of charge on iTunes or use the podcast app. Thank you so much for listening to tonight's show. I've really enjoyed it. And it was great to have a chat to Sharon herself, to uh, Peter Fines from the Cork Butter Museum, to Morris Gilbert from Ballyhar Apples, and finally to Elaine from 1826 Restaurant. Until next week, when Sharon will be back in the presenter's chair, bon appetit. 
Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!